From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, legal scholars Susan Block and Jessica Levinson join me to discuss the potential constitutional crisis specifically. Can special counsel Robert Mueller subpoena President Donald Trump? That's coming up on the public morality. Welcome to the public morality. Mayor, what's the, if, if the president's done nothing wrong, as you say again and again, and he tells I, the he truth... He hasn't done anything wrong, George. As you, I know, and if he, tells, and he tells the truth, as you would advise him to do, what is the danger <laughs> in answering Robert Because they're trying to trap... They're, they're, you, can't, you couldn't put a lawyer on the show who wants to keep his law license to tell you he should testify. But it's only a trap a if the president doesn't tell the truth. No, it isn't. It's only prosecutable if they have some built up manipulated evidence to prove the president didn't tell the truth. Well, if How they, often has that happened? If you have evidence that proves he doesn't tell the truth, then the president didn't tell the truth. Uh, no. People do things like lie. People lie. Could, could Comey be lying? You're damn right he could be lying, George. And we're going to walk ourselves into a trap like that? Well, I, but if, I, if, I, I couldn't... But I couldn't if, if Mr. Comey lied to the special counsel, then he's the one who's vulnerable to perjury. If the president tells the truth, that. he's not. And the, and the special counsel has to be open to, to, to believing that. The special counsel so far seems to think that Comey is Moses. And I happen to think Comey is Judas. But That was former New York City Mayor and presidential attorney Rudolph Giuliani speaking with ABC's George Stephanopoulos. Since being added to President Donald Trump's legal defense team, Giuliani's attempts to close legal entanglements for the president has seemingly opened the possibility of exposing his client in other areas. The one question that predates Giuliani is whether special counsel Robert Mueller can actually subpoena the president of the United States. In constitutional jurisprudence, this is a question that has not been completely answered but it is a question that appears to be increasing in possibility. I am joined by two noted scholars to unpack the legal ramifications. We begin our conversation with Susan Block. Block is a constitutional law professor at Georgetown University. Professor Sue Block, welcome to The Public Morality. Nice to be with you. Well, let's begin with the constitutional question that seems to be gaining momentum can President Trump be compelled to testify before a grand jury by special counsel Robert Mueller? Well, the question is, you know, can Mueller subpoena him? And if Trump refuses, what happens next? Um, in my view, Trump, I mean, Mueller can subpoena the president. Um, if Trump refuses... Uh, Mueller is likely to go to court to enforce the subpoena. Um, that's likely to go ultimately to the Supreme Court because that precise question has really never been addressed. But I believe that given the kinds of questions the court has answered in the Nixon era and in the Clinton era, I believe it's very likely that the Supreme Court would enforce the subpoena and require that Trump 
respond to Mueller. But it's not a trivial question, and it probably does require um, the Supreme Court to weigh in on it. Now, now, when you said that the question has not been definitively answered, but yet we still have uh, the Nixon case, as you mentioned, the Clinton case. So what would the court need to answer at this point? Well, in the Nixon case, what was subpoenaed were the um, tapes, Mm -hmm. not testimony by Nixon. So when Nixon refused to turn over the tapes, he claimed executive privilege, and that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, in that particular case, weighing the pros and cons on both sides, the court said Nixon did have to turn over the tapes. But there's no question there about requiring Nixon to personally respond. And in the Clinton case, Clinton did not fight Ken Starr's request for testimony. Clinton agreed, and they made some kind of mutual agreement where he met Starr in a particular room, and they worked out the um, arrangements amicably, well, at least outside the courtroom. I don't know how amicable it was, (laughs) but but they did it uh, without having to go to court. So um, that's what I meant when I said um, the exact question here of Mueller subpoenaing President Trump um, has not been definitively answered by the courts. It hasn't been addressed by the courts. Mm-hmm. So, so as a constitutional law scholar, when, when, when you hear statements like, say, that over the weekend of, of um, the, the president's attorney and former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, when he says, um, I, I don't know if he's going to testify, like he makes it sound like it's optional. I mean, do your eyes just sort of glaze over that and just think that's just... Uh, bluster. How do you how do you hear that? Um, it is a bit of bluster. Um, although, as I said, we actually haven't specifically had this question. So, if Trump refuses, it would go to the courts. It's conceivable that the courts would agree with Trump that he doesn't have to testify. But I wouldn't put much money on that. I I do believe the courts will find that the president has to testify. But it's, it is not a slam dunk, and we've never, and the courts have never addressed this specific question. So Giuliani is not, um, it's not crazy for him to say, to, you know, to question it. I just think he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Duly noted. Um, uh, when, we, when we think about some of those uh, recent, some of the other recent statements that, that, that uh, Mayor Giuliani has stated, which sort of, we mentioned Nixon, uh, so I'll use a Nixonian phrase, or a phrase made popular by Watergate, I should say. Um, the, Giuliani sort of changes the, the notion, when did the president know, know and when did he know it, and does that have any impact on the actions of the special counsel? I guess I'm not sure what you're asking. Well, well, well. It, it, you know, earlier, the president said he didn't. For example, or just one aspect, the president said earlier, like in April, he didn't know what Michael Cohen was doing. Uh, right. And then Giuliani says, "Well, he did know. And he changed, sort of changed the timeline." And right. then, the, and the president says, sort of confirms initially what 
Giuliani said, and then tried to walk it back a couple of days later. I'm just wondering, does any of does any of that sort of public discourse have an impact on the thinking of a special counsel, in your view? Well, I think anytime people come out with different stories, conflicting stories, it makes you question their veracity um, and makes you wonder what they're trying to hide. So I don't think it helps the president at all that um, he and Giuliani can't seem to agree on the facts. Um, But I don't think the Stormy Daniels issue is what's going to really hurt Trump in the long run. I think it's more, you know, campaign collusion, possibly, mm-hmm. and um, obstruction of justice. I don't, I don't see a lot of, um, I see a lot of sort of interest in the Stormy Daniels story because, it's, you know, it's a porn star and it's, it's titillating. I don't see a lot of legal jeopardy for, for Trump in that. I think it's much more in the Mueller investigation and the possibility of collusion and obstruction of justice. Well, you mentioned obstruction of justice, and so let's turn to someone else um, uh, uh, that uh, um, Professor Dershowitz, who has—others have made this argument on the president's behalf, but Professor Dershowitz has made, I guess, more forcefully, that if the president is— within the scope of his responsibilities, it can't be obstruction of justice. Now, maybe, I hope I, did I get that right? Um, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but that argument to those of us who are not lawyers seems to say if you get 270 electoral votes, there are situations where you can be above the law. You, you accurately describe what Dershowitz says, and I think Dershowitz is wrong. Um, what, you know, Dershowitz says, that the president can fire the FBI director. And that is true. He can. But he, if he does it um, so as to obstruct justice, i.e., in this case, prevent an investigation or cover up something, then that is a criminal matter. Um, and the president can be found guilty of obstructing justice, even though he can fire someone like, well, Comey in this case, or possibly Mueller, um, if he's doing it, as long as he's not doing it, you know, with a corrupt intent is, is the legal definite, the legal jargon. Um, in other words, I believe Dershowitz is wrong. I believe that someone like Trump, or any president, can fire an FBI director, but not if the purpose of firing the director is to impede an investigation. Well, um, and I think you'll find most people find Dershowitz wrong. And, and so that sort of goes back to what we were talking about um, uh, just a few, a, few, a few moments ago, uh, that um, given, you know, from the special counsel's perspective, you're changing the story. I mean, we do have the president on the record uh, with Russian officials and also with Lester Holt on NBC making the statement that he fired him because of the Russia thing. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think someone should have told him to be quiet, but um, I do think he's um, hurt his case because of all the talking he's done and what he has said. Um, and 
I believe that there is a possibility that he can be found guilty of obstruction of justice. And it's noteworthy that the articles of impeachment for both Nixon and Clinton um, included obstructing of justice. Obstruction of justice, not for firing someone, but for, you know, obstructing an investigation. So presidents can do, um, you know, can be found guilty and can be impeached for obstructing justice. Walk us through, if you would, uh, sort of a Reader's Digest version of 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 this of this whole grand jury procedure, uh, from the subpoena to the grand jury. Is, is there things that the, that say the special counsel knows that he has information that maybe the president even know, is unaware that he has? How how does this whole process work? Well, Mueller's been working with. Uh, a grand jury both in Virginia and another one in D.C. And there might be one going on in New York that the New York U.S. attorney is is working with. And what happens with grand juries is um, the prosecutor, in this case Mueller, and in New York it's the U.S. attorney, um, present evidence to the grand jury trying to convince the the grand jury that there's evidence of an indictable offense, and ultimately asking the grand jury to indict an individual. So we have indictments now of Manafort coming out of Virginia. Um, We have some indictments coming out of the D.C. grand jury. Um, And ultimately what that means is that there'll be trials held in each of these districts of the indicted people. Does that help? Yeah, no, that, that's good. That's very helpful. But I'm, I'm, I'm also wondering, um, is it like we, we know, we don't know. I mean, those of us on the outside, we don't know what, what special counsel Mueller knows. Right. It, it, would that be the same for, for, for say president Trump and his legal team in, in the grand jury? Portion? Yeah, they don't know. I, I don't see any way that they would know. I mean, the grand, everything that happens within the grand jury is secret, remains secret until there's an indictment. And then even then, the indictment's public, but, you know, what's gone before it is still secret. So I don't see any way that Trump would know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I, the reason I raised that with you, and I'm glad you explained it uh, well, in the way you did, is because, it, it, it once again, this sort of goes back to what you said earlier about the importance of keeping your story straight, because does does that raise raise the bar for he, uh, for perjury or raise yes. the potential? I should yes. say. Yeah. No, it's it's a huge risk. I mean, so far, Trump hasn't said anything under oath, and the risk of perjury is only when you either say something under oath, or if you lie to the FBI, even if you're not under oath, that too can be perjury. But simply, you know, running your mouth or tweeting, um, I can't, I guess you don't tweet your mouth, but, you know, simply talking in any informal way is not indictable. It's not perjurous or can't be accused of perjury. Mm-hmm. It's only when you're under oath. And so far he hasn't been. So he really, you know, similarly, you know, um, Sanders. 
Huckleberry. What's her name? <laughs> uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Sarah, right. <laughs> Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Um, yeah, she's not under oath either. Neither is Giuliani. So, I mean, they they can run their mouth without um, any legal jeopardy, but they don't help Trump when they when they come out with conflicting stories. It's not indictable. It's just not very helpful. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Georgetown Law Professor uh, Susan Block, and we're discussing um, the potential of uh, President Donald Trump being subpoenaed by Special Counsel Robert Mueller. And Professor Block, uh, one of the buzzwords that has been thrown about um, is constitutional crisis. Mm-hmm. How do you define constitutional crisis, and is there a scenario whereby this situation could rise to that particular level? I think the term constitutional crisis is uh, both overused and underdefined. <laughs> um, I I think what people mean when they say that is that um, that parts of the Constitution that we usually just sort of rely on and take for granted are being put to the test. So, um, you know, we don't want to impeach our presidents. We want to... Um, elect them, have them serve out their term, run again if they want. You know, we want this process to work smoothly. We don't like to yank them out in the middle of the term. Um, But the impeachment mechanism is there if we need it. Um, And I think what people mean when they say constitutional crisis is using mechanisms like the impeachment mechanism to, you know, undo an election. Um, We've done it before, and the country not only survived, but I don't think was really in you know, any significant danger. So I think the term crisis is overstated. But I think what people are meaning by it, you know, mean by it when they use it is these extreme methods are being hauled out, and we don't like to see them used, and it is somewhat um, scary because because they're unusual and because they um, shake up the democratic process. So I wouldn't call it a crisis, but I understand why people do. Mm-hmm. Um, Luckily, we've always just, you know, been really cool about it. We've used these mechanisms when we had to. The country was never in any danger, and so, you know, we're fortunate. I can understand where in some other countries an impeachment could be a crisis and could really unsettle the government. Luckily, in our situation thus far, that hasn't happened. Well, in some, in some countries, impeachment could turn violent. So we, we... Right. <laughs> well, that's right. And I do think some people fear um, that if um, there were a serious move to impeach Trump and remove him, that there might be parts of the country that would threaten violence. So I, you know, I think the people who fear that maybe are using the term crisis appropriately. But um, that's where I, I, I guess I don't really see that danger. Mm-hmm. Since, since it's been reported uh, that the special counsel and the president's legal team have been negotiating the terms for which the president might appear before a grand jury, uh, based on your, your experience, what is prohibiting at this point Robert Mueller from just issuing a subpoena to Donald Trump? Nothing is prohibiting him from doing it. Um, 
I, you know, he won't do it precipitously. He'll only do it when he has all his, you know, ducks in a row. He's um, ready to question Trump. Um, Mueller is incredibly thorough, and my impression and, and of Mueller and any really good prosecutor is you don't ask questions that you... You only ask questions that you pretty sure you know the answer to. You're really well prepared, and you don't like surprises. So I think he's probably not ready yet to to question Trump, and I think that's why there's been no subpoena. Um, I think he would like Trump to agree voluntarily to just come in. That would be preferable. Um, as I said, I think if he subpoenas Trump, we might have a you know, protracted legal battle. But I just think Mueller's not ready to do it yet, and I think that's why we haven't seen it yet. Now, if the president comes in voluntarily, he he's still under oath, though, right? Although, all... yeah. yes, he's he's not only under oath. Even when you just when you're being questioned by the FBI, I don't even think you need an oath. It's a federal offense to lie to them. Any, you know, without regard to whether you took an oath. Yeah, but, I, I think Mike Flynn knows that one now. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's not. Yeah. It's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but so yeah, under oath or not, you just you don't lie to the FBI. Mm-hmm. Um, any thoughts? We, we, we talked about we talked about this earlier, and uh, I'm, I'm getting you to surmise now. You put on your Notre Dame's hat, but. Okay. Uh, uh, any thoughts what this particular Supreme Court, if it gets that far, we talked about earlier about uh, should the president invoke executive privilege and not want to appear, what uh, this court might do because the court that ruled in Nixon is obviously different than the court that ruled in the Clinton case or, or thought of, uh, or the, the court that, that was in power during the Clintons is different from now. So any thought what this court might do, how they might lean? Well, this court is somewhat more conservative than the prior courts. Um, but I think in this area, when you're talking about the the power of the court, the power of the prosecutor, the power of the presidency, I think any court would follow the precedent that was established in the United States versus Nixon. Um, and what that is, is you look at what the president, why the president is seeking to maintain secrecy versus what the other side, why the other side needs the information. And that balancing test was established in the Nixon case, and I believe this court would use that same test. And I think the need to... Um, investigate what happened in our election and what the Russians did and what the Trump administration did, I believe in even this court, even though it's more conservative, I still think they would come out on the Mueller side um, and require that Trump um, provide the information in some form. They might give Trump, they'll probably give the president some leeway as to how he provides the information. Um, But my guess is that this court will require that Trump 
respond to Mueller and somehow provide the information. And when you say leeway, are you are you speaking in terms of maybe having his lawyer present, maybe doing it video the way Clinton did, or things of that nature? Yes, I think they would try and accommodate the president's schedule, his preferences to where he does it. They might allow him to have a lawyer, even though normally in a grand jury setting you don't. Um, they will go out of their way. I think any court goes out of its way to try and accommodate the needs of the president, but they will require that the president somehow provide the information. I'm also wondering, because we also mentioned, uh, we mentioned Nixon, we also mentioned Clinton. Uh, my words, not yours. The Clinton impeachment felt to me uh, back then that we really lowered the bar on how we're going to proceed in, 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 in such matters. Um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you find. I agree. Okay. So, okay. Now that you agreed, you, you just answered part A of the question. So now we can go to the second part of the question. The second part of the question, see how much fun we have here. Uh, do, the second part of the question would be then, does that residue in your view have any impact on the present moment? Well, I, I, I think the impeachment of Clinton was, um, excessive. I don't, I don't think um, his alleged perjury warranted um, impeachment. Um, and I, I also believe that um, had the whole Clinton matter arisen after 9-11, we would have been less frivolous about using the impeachment as, as the Congress did in that case. I think in the 90s we were very content, comfortable. We really didn't have, we weren't worried about ISIS and terrorism and didn't worry so much about tying up the president in an impeachment process. Um, and we also think, you know, Clinton was pretty good at compartmentalizing, so I think people just didn't, they were just more willing to use... Uh, a sledgehammer when uh, that was excessive, in my view. Um, so, yes, I think we set a bad precedent. <laughs> I think impeachment is a really drastic remedy and should only be used for really serious matters. And I don't think, you know, Clinton's lying about it. Monica Lewinsky rose to that. But I do think that if Trump colluded with the Russians and messed up our elections, that does rise to the higher level. I don't know that he did, um, but I... So in answer to your question, I think the Clinton thing was overdone, but I don't think it messed up the tool of impeachment forever. I would, I would like to think, regardless of the president, if whoever that person may be, if we found out that that person, that individual, regardless of party, did something in our elections with a foreign power that crossed the board, we should, that person should go. I think, I think we should still right. be at that standard. That's just my weird way of looking at the matter. No, I totally agree. And I think it rises to the level of uh, treason. Yes. Um, and that's different than lying about an affair. So I, uh, I totally agree with you. Georgetown Law Professor Susan Block, thank you so much for joining us today on The Public Morality. That was Georgetown Law Professor Susan Block. Stay tuned as we continue our conversation with Jessica Levinson 
of Loyola Law School. Welcome back. We continue our conversation with law professor Jessica Levinson. Levinson is a law professor at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. Professor Jessica Levinson, welcome to the Public Rally. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. We just had uh, Susan Block on from Georgetown University, uh, and I'm going to pose the same question to you that I started with her. Can President Trump be compelled to testify if issued a subpoena by Special Counsel Robert Mueller? Sure. Um, I think the answer is we don't know, but likely yes. So this question has never been tested by the United States Supreme Court, which actually indicates to you kind of in the fact that we're in uncharted waters right now. And so similar questions have certainly arisen. I mean, most recently with respect to President Clinton, when he was sued by Paula Jones, And ultimately, when a subpoena was threatened, he said, you know what, I'll agree to testimony. And so I think if you look at the Supreme Court precedent in this area, that the better answer is, yes, the judicial branch can say, Mr. President, no person is above the law, and we'll make allowances for time and place, but you do need to respond to a subpoena. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to – here's another question. Uh, that I posed to um, uh, Professor Block, and I, I assure you, I'm just not going to rehash all the questions I gave to her. But but since you just said something, I want I want to ask you and get your thoughts on this because Alan Dershowitz has uh, been most notable in saying that it it that the president within his scope of duties cannot obstruct justice. Now, for those of us who are not attorneys, sounds to me if you get 270 electoral votes. For that time period, you're above the law. And I wondered how how you saw that argument. I just don't think that argument holds water at all. I mean, I think that argument, as you basically said, is, well, look, once I become president, then everything I do is immune. And legally speaking, I can't obstruct justice. I think we know from past cases, particularly with respect to President Nixon, that people don't think that's the case. I think there is a real open question as to whether or not a sitting president can be indicted for crimes, including the crime of obstruction of justice, but that's separate from whether or not the president could have committed obstruction of justice. And I think if you look at the statute for obstruction of justice, it's a very high threshold. It's difficult to prove. But that doesn't mean that just because, you know, the chief justice of the United States swears you in, all of a sudden that means you're incapable of committing this crime. You you mentioned Nixon, and it was actually in in the Nixon-Frost interviews that President Nixon said when the president does it, it's not illegal. And everybody sort of recoiled uh, even when he said that. So, uh, And and it's something that we should recoil about. I mean, I believe— strongly that there's a lot of allowances we should make for the president. I think whoever sits in the White House, it's an incredibly important position. But I also think it's important for people to know that the president is our leader, but is not outside of our legal system. And that's a very important distinction. Well, to, well, to, that, to that point, 
it, it seems uh, that one of the challenges uh, for us, we the people, is because this involves the president, we have difficulty separating what happens in a courtroom versus the court of public opinion. And, and in this scenario, can those truly be separated? Well, I certainly hope so, and that's the job of judges, and that's why I think actually it's important to make sure that judges are not subject to political pressure, and that's why, for instance, on the federal level, judges have lifetime appointments as opposed to in some states we elect judges. And the idea of appointing judges on the federal level is so that they don't have to think about the court of public opinion. So they do something which is just applying the facts to the law, and sometimes it's a matter of first impression, and they have to use their discretion and determine what they think the law requires. But that should be entirely separate from political pressure. Now, look, judges are humans, too, and you know it kind of strains common sense to think that they aren't aware of the current political climate. But hopefully those two things remain distinct and different. It always makes me nervous when people say, well, there's a big case that's in front of a federal judge who appointed the judge, because the assumption is if it's a Republican that appointed the judge, then they're going to vote in a conservative way. And if it's a Democrat that appointed the judge, they'll vote in a more liberal or progressive way. And I, I, uh, you know, in the vast majority of cases, judges aren't using their partisan ideology to make their decisions. Uh when we do a show on ju- electing judges, uh, I live in a state where you elect judges here in North Carolina. We'll have to have you back on because that is like the bane of my existence. I j- it just seems incomprehensible. Why are we voting for judges? That just well, I mean, I th- I hate it in California too, and it's one of one of the many banes of my existence. And I would say that we elect judges because. We tend to, as voters, really trust ourselves, even if we have very little information about judges, and we don't like to give power away. And we don't like to say, you know what, this is better done through an appointment process, and you know, the governor in consultation with a different, another body can make this determination. But it really doesn't make a lot of sense because judges are the last stop on the train to tyranny of the majority, and they shouldn't be worried about what the majority thinks, and they shouldn't be worried about what is politically popular, and they shouldn't be worried about outside spending. And I worry that judicial elections just infuses all of those concerns into the courtroom. Is there a role, in your view, where the president could invoke executive privilege to avoid uh, testifying before a grand jury? I So in this situation, I guess what I would say is the contours of executive privilege have not been fully defined. So the first thing we should say is it depends on a number of different things, and I hate to give you a lawyerly answer, like is the president being sued in his personal capacity or in his official capacity? Are these Is he being sued based on acts that occurred before the election or while he was in office? But... And while executive privilege is broad, I don't think in this situation it would give President Trump carte blanche to say, no, you know what, I I simply am uh, immune from a subpoena. Now, the president, like everybody else in the country, can assert their Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. So we could say that the president can be subpoenaed, but then when he wants to ask questions, and 
a different issue is whether or not the president can say, I assert my Fifth Amendment right. And like everybody else, he should, if he wants to, absolutely do that. And I think that the problem for President Trump is that he has said only mobsters and liars assert the Fifth Amendment. And I would frankly love for him to make a statement in support of the Constitution and to say, this is a protection that's available to me, and on advice of counsel, I'm going to use it. Well, you know, it's interesting that you, you would bring up the Fifth Amendment here because it's sort of what we talked about earlier about, you know, the, the, the court of law and the court of public opinion. In one sense, uh, uh, I'm not speaking about President Trump right now, but just the, pres- the presidency in general, that they're sort of, they're, I guess they're in a bind because uh, – there, there, there's a concession to be made uh, before issuing a subpoena. We we treat presidents for good reason, somewhat differently, to, to, because of the responsibilities they have. So maybe your lawyer's present. Maybe you do it video the way President Clinton did it. So we, we allow sort of that sort of leeway. But at the same time, if the president invokes his Fifth Amendment, which is his right to do politically, that looks really bad. Oh, it looks terrible. I mean, it looks terrible even if you're not President Trump and you haven't said only liars do this. And I mean, I think because the natural reaction for a number of people is, well, look, if you have nothing to hide and you didn't do anything wrong, and this was basically what President Trump said, then why would you invoke the Fifth Amendment? And there's, I guess what I would say is, President Trump has really committed to muddying the waters on this issue and to making it look politically unpalatable. But there's just simply no question that it looks terrible. It looks like something guilty people do, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, just the grand jury process, uh, for for the president or anyone um, at going through a grand jury process at the federal level, what are the potential landmines for them entering into this process? Well, I I hate to always give you this answer, but the grand jury process, I mean, it depends on what the grand jury has been charged with looking at and where their investigation leads. So I think with respect to the Robert Mueller investigation, what we've seen is that the investigation is incremental and methodical, and he's taking the investigation where the evidence, meaning the people and the documents, take him. But you know, with respect to a grand jury process, I mean, this will sound almost surprising to people, but it really is supposed to be a secretive process. We happen to have found out a lot about what's happening in this case. But I guess the other thing I'd say about the grand jury process is I hope we don't ever normalize the sentence, the president under investigation by a grand jury, because this should still be extraordinary, even in these times when we talk about it all the time. And when you say a secretive process, to what extent should it be secretive? Well, I think what the grand jury is doing in terms of, I mean, what the law provides is that the grand jury process in terms of when they're issuing subpoenas and when, which documents they're asking for and when they're asking for testimony, that really all of that happens um, in the shadows. And that doesn't mean that it's not transparent. It's not designed to be transparent. Uh, what we have in this case is we have a lot of leaks. Mm. Uh, is there any way I want to I want to go back cause to the to the Fifth Amendment question uh, and take it a little further and just have you surmising this? Is there any way in your view 
if the president um, invoked his Fifth Amendment right, we're, we're, let me just say we're assuming that. We don't know. We have no information to, to, to suggest otherwise. But assuming just for a moment, if he invoked it, would that, would that do irre, irreparable harm? Um, legally, probably not. It would potentially prevent him from doing irreparable harm. But politically, I think my answer for any other president would be absolutely. But President Trump has done a really good job of making the American public question the veracity of the Mueller investigation. And I think that's hugely problematic for a number of reasons. He's essentially asked us to question the integrity of the judicial system, of the Department of Justice, of the FBI. And certainly he, I mean, how many times has he used the word witch hunt with respect to the Mueller investigation? So I think for another president, it would be hugely problematic. But there's been really a concerted campaign to undermine the Mueller investigation. So I think if you can, as President Trump, if you can say, what we basically what we've heard Julie, Rudy Giuliani say this weekend, which is, look, this is a witch hunt, and so why would he ever want to subject himself to questions? Um, then at least his base, I think, will support him. You, you know, well, what I'm also wondering there, though, I, I wonder how how you saw this is because I'm sure you see people who are touted on television as attorneys. People who are touted as judges, people who are, are who are, uh, are touted of being knowledgeable about the Constitution, but but that does not prohibit them from saying things. Where I'm sure you're doing OMG, uh, LOL. I mean, I mean, but these things get passed on as if they they're accurate, and and then we the people buy it, and so that's got to be a just in general a frustration for you. Oh, I mean, it's hugely frustrating, and it bothers me to my core. And I think what Rudy Giuliani has said just this weekend has been an example of what not to do as an attorney. I mean, he said a couple of things that are so troublesome. He said, well, I don't have all the facts. I'm still getting up to speed, but here are some legal conclusions. I mean, I have news for him. Legal conclusions depend on the facts that you can prove. So that's deeply troubling. I mean, I would be so disappointed in one of my students if they ever made a statement like that. And Rudy Giuliani has also said on programs, well, here's a fact. And then later when he's confronted with the fact that that's not actually a fact, he said, well, that was just my opinion. And this is something that, in my opinion, we have seen the Trump administration do, which is conflate opinion and facts. And I find that, frankly, deeply problematic because what you're essentially doing is you're saying to society, well, statements of fact are really no different from statements of opinion. And part of this, I think, is just a broader effort by the Trump administration. But part of this is actually legally really important for President Trump because he's been sued in two different defamation cases, one by some reservists and the other by um, Stormy Daniels. And in both cases, one of the defenses to defamation is uh, that you were just expressing your opinion. So, but to get back to your question about Rudy Giuliani, or, you know, about this issue of kind of facts and um, an opinion, I mean, I, as, as a law professor, I would just be so sad if any of my students ever went on national television and 
just spewed facts that were not true, I would truly feel, feel that I failed as a professor. And just, and just, and just staying on that for a moment, um, what might the uh, special counsel be thinking when you're, or when one, someone's attorney goes on national television and undercuts or contradicts their client's original message? Well, I mean, I would say it looks like the president's legal team is in turmoil. And I think that's, it looks like that to the public. And my guess is it looks like that to the special counsel. So, you know, in terms of Rudy Giuliani contradicting himself and, frankly, I think promulgating misleading statements and saying he didn't say things that he did say, um, I'm not sure how much that would really affect the special counsel's investigation, unless Rudy Giuliani is saying something true, like, oh, well, the President Trump reimbursed Michael Cohen for his payments to Stormy Daniel, and then he has basically walked President Trump into a potential campaign finance violation. Um, so those types of statements would be interesting to the special counsel, but I think you know, merely the fact that the president's attorney is on national television stating at best half half truths and inconsistencies, I don't know that that's actually legally significant. It just looks to the special counsel like exactly what's happening, which is President Trump cannot keep a stable legal team. That was Jessica Levinson, law professor, Loyola Law School in Los Angeles, California. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. Corality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal, as well as Politics NC. That's Politics North Carolina. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>